Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. It's been a tumultuous few days in British politics. We're bringing you this up-to-the-minute news bulletin episode to discuss the latest news on Brexit and the unprecedented crisis facing Theresa May and the whole Tory party. We've delayed this week's episode because of the planned parliamentary vote over May's Brexit deal, but our last episode of 2018 will be published as usual next Monday, followed by a two-week Christmas break, and then continuing as usual from Monday 7th January. Over to Sarah Rack. Okay, I'm here today speaking to Hannah Sell, the Deputy General Secretary of the Socialist Party, who people will remember from episode one of our podcast. And this is a delayed episode this week um, because we wanted to be able to respond to what was going to be the parliamentary vote (laughs) on Theresa May's Brexit deal. And now we're responding to that vote being cancelled. And of course, uh, even since we realised that, to the... Uh, no confidence um, vote being triggered uh, against Theresa May. So, hi, Hannah. Hi. (laughs) Um, So, the events of this week are a very big deal, aren't they? Can you think of anything kind of similar in uh, recent history where there's been a kind of 11th hour backtrack on such a big scale by a Prime Minister? Not really. I mean, it is a very, very big deal, as shown by the events of today, which we obviously didn't know about when we were first discussing this podcast she's retreated she's not put the deal to a vote in parliament and I think she always knew she was going to lose but it was when she realised the gigantic margin she was going to lose by she decided she couldn't put it to the vote and now she faces a no confidence vote from her own backbenchers and if she holds on tonight we'll have to see you might have to have another podcast tomorrow depending on events but if she holds on It's going to be because the majority of the Tory party have looked into the abyss and seen that by getting rid of her, they're dramatically speeding up the kind of tearing apart of the Tory party and that that would mean a Jeremy Corbyn-led government coming to power. So she may scrape through because of that. Who knows what the vote's going to be? If she does, formally speaking, then it's a year before they can have another no-confidence vote in her although she's already promising from what I've seen in the news, that she may not hang around that long if they just vote her through tonight. But even if she clings on, all the problems that she had before today, the fact they're at a complete impasse over Brexit, remain exactly the same. And, you know, I'm older than you. I can remember a few Tory party crises. I remember Thatcher being forced out, and superficially that was related to Europe as well. But actually, the main factor was the 18 million strong movement against the poll tax, which our party led. Um, And, you know, that was the poll tax was defeated and she was forced out. That was followed by Major, a very weak Tory prime minister who was in constant crisis and nearly had to resign when Britain crashed out of the ERM on Black Wednesday. But neither of those are comparable to this crisis for the Tory party. I think you've got to go back to long before I can remember. You've got to go back to the Corn Laws and the mid-19th century, when, again, on issues relating to splits in the elite over free trade or protectionism, but at that stage, the Tory party split and were out of power for 30 years as a result. And that's how far you've got to go back to see a crisis of this magnitude and it's, Brexit's the reason, it's the hook, and it's a real problem for them. But I don't think Brexit is the whole explanation. It's related 
to the depth of the crisis of the capitalist system, which the Tory party defends. And the fact that since the economic crisis started for a decade, we've had the longest period of wage restraint, endless austerity, that millions of people have suffered and they're angry. That's what led to the Brexit vote in the referendum in the first place. Um, But it's also put the Tory party into crisis. In the 50s, the Tories had two and a half million members. They were a gigantic party with a huge social base. Today, they're a dying party. I mean, I think officially they've got about 120,000 members. Most of those are in their 70s. There's hardly anything left. And that is because the policies they've implemented over decades, even before the economic crisis, meant misery not just for working class people, but for many middle class people as well, especially since the crisis. So their social base has been undermined hugely. And what they've got left, it's clearly a pro-capitalist party. I mean, there's no wing of the Tory party that represents the interests of ordinary people. But it's not a party that acts in the interests of the capitalist class in Britain. And that's shown by this, because the capitalist class would rather have never had a referendum. They'd rather just still be in the European Union. They want to be in the single market. But instead, you've got these, you know, few tens of thousands of pensioners who really believe that... If only they could get out of the EU, Britain would be a major imperialist power again. They would no longer be being crushed by major multinational corporations, their own businesses and so on. Um, And therefore, that that is the way forward. And it's totally utopian. But that's what they think. And they're the people who have the votes over a leadership contest, if it comes to that, in the Tory party. So on the specifics then of why the vote was called off, it seems like the biggest sticking point for... um, particularly many of the the Tory backbenchers, is this issue of the backstop arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, what is that and why is it so important to to those people in particular? Okay, so the backstop's obviously connected to the question of the Irish border and that is a very important issue for all working class people, but especially for working class people living in Northern Ireland. It matters, the question of the border. And there's a real danger that any capitalist solution exacerbates sectarian tensions and that is not in the interest of working class people and we have to oppose any measures that would do that. However, the tensions in the Tory party and between the Tory party and the EU on the question of the backstop are a symptom of a much broader problem. So under May's deal, during the transition period which is meant to be for 21 months, as though, as Jeremy Corbyn rightly pointed out, in the draft she brought back from Brussels, it actually said until 20XX. So theoretically, it could go on till 2099. But anyway, um, the transition period, uh, Britain will remain in the customs union and the single market. So effectively, will be part of all of the current neoliberal uh, uh, apparatus that comes with the European Union. Um, but that would mean no hard border between North and South in Ireland, because both would be in the single market. But the EU is insisting that there's what's called this backstop arrangement, which means that if there is no satisfactory deal negotiated at the end of the transition period, and right now nobody has come up with what this satisfactory deal would actually be, then the backstop would kick in, and that would mean that Britain would be part of a single customs territory with the EU. So effectively would still be part of the customs union. Um, And it's the EU that are insisting on that. And they're insisting on it because they are 
a 28 country single market that is established to maximise their profits and to compete in the most effective way possible against the other major capitalist blocs, the US, China, Japan, um, and Britain is part of that. But they're saying, you want to leave? It's not going to be so easy and we have to protect ourselves. And they're particularly worried from their point of view that there is no um, dilution of the borders of the single market. But if Britain's not in the European Union, is not in the single market, but has an open border between North and South Ireland, then that means a dilution of the border and room for lots of smuggling, goods coming in and out, whatever, I don't know, you know, chlorinated chicken, whatever that Britain's allowing that the rest of the EU isn't and undermining big business in the EU bloc. So they don't want that. They're pushing for that. The attitude of the Brexiteers is actually, who cares? Smuggle away. You know, they don't, they don't give a damn about this question of the border. But the uh, EU does. And so that's why they're pushing on that question. And it's an issue for the Brexiteers because they're worried they're going to end up permanently trapped in a customs union. And they're not wrong from the point of view if you look at May's deal. And so what is the solution to that then? Because Corbyn's been attacked for having a kind of idealist approach to it that uh, it's been pointed out that, um, uh, you know, it's been claimed it's not possible to have any arrangement without a backstop uh, plan. So how would we get around this complex issue you've just outlined? Well, it isn't simple for anybody, but our starting point is working class interests. And we don't care about the integrity of the single market. It was Thatcher that signed Britain up to the single market. It comes with all kinds of pro-privatisation, anti-working class rules, and we will be quite happy to undermine its integrity and we completely oppose a hard border. But how we get round it, how concretely you would fight for it, is linked to the issue of the role a Corbyn-led government could play and how it could appeal to working class interests across Europe and undermine the leaders of the EU, if you like, by appealing to the base. So that's a brief answer. I'll say a bit more on it. But I think that that essentially has to be a correct approach. Okay, so so May called off the vote, recognised she was going to lose by a big margin and said that she would go back to uh, get assurances, particularly on this issue of the backstop. But the EU negotiators seem to be saying there's no possibility of reopening negotiations on that at all. So what is she actually hoping to achieve? Well, I mean, she's just hoping to survive, to kick the can down the road, to live another day. Um, uh, And it's been pretty clear prior to this no confidence vote that she's got nothing really from the EU leaders. And I think the most she ever hoped to get was a few warm words. They weren't going to change the fundamentals, but they might have given her some nice statements about desiring to get out of the backstop to never use it, etc., etc. But May is in a really, really weak position. She's got a party that's split down the middle. No one really supports her deal. It's seen as the worst of all worlds on all sides um, in terms of public opinion. What options has she got? I mean, if she wins this no-confidence vote, what can she do to strengthen her position? She may be tempted, and there's been rumours, that she could try to go to the country again, as she did not very successfully uh, last year. Um, But how would she win that? I mean, there would be an analogy with 1974, when a Tory Prime Minister, Ted Heath, 
went to the country and said, who rules Britain? Is it me or is it the miners? Because the miners were leading militant industrial action at that stage. And the country answered, the miners. I mean, if she was to go now with this deal and if Corbyn was to do his job right and put forward radical policies for a socialist Brexit linked to a £10 an hour minimum wage, mass council house building, nationalisation of the privatised utilities and so on, he could be elected by a landslide. And he would be, as Prime Minister, in a much stronger position. And this is linked to the point I was making under the last question, because he could appeal to the working class across Europe. Look at all those people on the streets in France at the moment. And Macron was this strong president coming in with his Blairite ideas and he was going to modernise the economy. And it's been turned to dust because people have said we're not accepting it, we're taking to the streets because they're angry about austerity. They're angry about the same things that we're angry about in Britain. And if he was to negotiate saying what we want is a socialist Brexit, we support absolutely the rights of other EU nationals to continue to live in Britain, to defend their rights, we oppose racism, but we are also saying that we don't want unnecessary barriers, we want free trade between the different countries But we have red lines and our red lines are no anti-worker laws, no pro-privatisation laws, um, no race to the bottom. And we appeal to workers across Europe, come out on the streets and support us. He would be in a very powerful position, actually, to force through a much better deal than May uh, is, uh, is able to do. He could also say to big business in Britain, who threatens to leave the country because of Brexit, you do that, we'll nationalise you. We'll take over the car plants and we'll run them. Uh, in the interests of the majority in Britain. So we would also have a much more powerful position from that point of view. Um, So it's clear, it seems, that one of the things um, that May's hoping by delaying the vote uh, is that it will be an ultimatum to those who are trying to force a a deal they're more happy with, of that they have to accept either her deal or no deal because it will be too late for her to go back to negotiators again. how likely do you think it is that uh, she's going to be successful in that, that actually the the Tory backbenchers and um, even the Blairites maybe will be forced to, to come in behind her because they're so terrified of the idea of crashing out? It's a good question and it's a bit of a how long is a piece of string answer because I think you can't say at this stage exactly how that is going to pan out. Um, in terms of the Remainer Tory backbenchers... The no confidence vote tonight is going to tell us quite a lot because if, and this is possible, they vote for May as the best of a bad option from their point of view, that can also be an indication down the road that they're prepared to back the deal rather than crash out. In terms of the Blairites, the right of the Labour Party, right now they are not prepared to vote for May's deal. That's crystal clear. And, you know, why should they rescue a sinking ship from their point of view and be tarnished by it? That's their problem. Because what that would then mean, effectively, you'd have a kind of national government in Britain with the Blairites holding May in power. But at the same time, within the Labour Party, they'd be finished, quite rightly so. Um, uh, But that would leave the Labour Party for Corbyn and his supporters and they would be totally discredited. So at this stage, they're not prepared to do that for a deal which appears to be doomed and a prime minister that appears to be uh, doomed. However, I still think that you can't rule out that changing further down the road. Events obviously are moving very quickly at the moment. And we all know that while 
this deal stands no chance at the moment of getting through Parliament, the position of the Confederation of British Industry, the position of the Financial Times, so the representatives of big business in this country has been kind of, well, we don't really like this deal, but it's a lot better than crashing out. And actually, we are still in the single market in reality, at least for the transition period, and maybe we could extend the transition period forever. So why don't you just vote for it? So that's the pressure they've been exerted, exerting. And the Blairites dance to the tune of big business, ultimately. So I think you could see a position, if she manages to cling on, if she gets some token concessions that make it look like a slightly better deal, and if crashing out appears imminent and the markets are tanking and there is a comparison here with what happened in the US around the TARP vote. So back at the time of the start of the world economic crisis, Obama tried to put through legislation through the Congress to bail out the finance system and it was voted down and the markets plunged. And then he put it to the vote again and it went through. And it's possible the pressure of the markets could push something similar so I don't think you can absolutely exclude the Blairites splitting away in those circumstances, saying we're doing it in the national interests and effectively becoming a national government along with May to stop Jeremy Corbyn coming to power and preventing a disorderly Brexit. But that is very, very politically difficult for them. And the longer things continue down the path we're on, the more likely it is that despite none of them wanting a Corbyn government, despite that being the worst thing for every wing of the capitalist class, it could still be what ends up happening. So, I mean, you mentioned already the the possibility of um, May going to the country or, you know, being mm. forced, uh, forced to, to take that risk. And it seems like everyone is talking about a general election that is clearly uh, the obvious thing yeah. in the situation. But how can we actually force that situation to come about? I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is saying the right things. He's saying he wants a general election. Unlike, unfortunately, other Labour frontbenchers who sometimes tend to kind of go, yeah, we'd like a general election, but we're not going to get that. So let's talk about mm. a second referendum. Whereas we should be hammering away at the question of a general election. But even for Jeremy Corbyn, it's not enough just to say it in Parliament. That's the problem. You have to mobilise on the streets for that idea. And again, I would draw a comparison with France mm. and the concessions. I know they're still small concessions at this stage, but the movement is not retreating. They've won something and they're going for more in France. And it shows the power of the working class when we act together. Um, in our view, Jeremy Corbyn should be setting the date now for a massive demonstration, probably early in the new year at this point in time, that he says he will lead demanding a general election. And he should be putting a call on all the trade union leaders to say they should be calling for walkouts on that day in support of that demonstration. Let's shut the country down demanding a general election. And if he combines what he says in Parliament with organising and leading that kind of action on the streets, then it can become unstoppable. And if it did happen... Um, obviously you've outlined what you know we would want a Corbyn-led government to, to come out of it but is our side in terms of what you've just outlined both Corbyn's side of the Labour Party but also the movement in general the trade unions and so on are we ready for a general election to be called? No <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's not we have to call for it now we have to fight for it you've got to act while the government is weak and on its knees you can't say oh we're not ready for history so we'll stand aside mm. we have to fight for a general election but it does mean that the nest that the, the measures to get ready are really urgent because we're not ready sufficiently at the moment so for example if you look at the parliamentary labor party um 
a big majority of them still do not support Jeremy Corbyn's anti-austerity programme, but are the pro-capitalist wing of the Labour Party. Um, Blairites or Blairites by another name in some cases. Unfortunately, we've been fighting for mandatory reselection, which would enable local Labour parties to deselect Blairite MPs and select socialists. That has not been won, and it's a mistake that's not been fought for by the tops of the Labour left. But there were at least measures put through at the Labour Party conference to strengthen what's called the trigger ballot procedure. But that can only be enacted once the leadership says, now we're in the run-up to an election, let's enact trigger ballots. So that has to be done now. Enact, enact trigger ballots to be ready for a general election as soon as possible and organise a campaign for those trigger ballots to vote against the Blairite incumbents, which then opens, opens up a process to selecting anti-austerity candidates uh, in the general election. There's also the question of what manifesto is stood on, because the manifesto in the snap election was good. We would want much more, but it was a good starting point. Um, there's no guarantees we'll have the same manifesto next time. And it really matters that we build on the snap election manifesto, not retreat from it, because people will not go and vote Labour because Jeremy Corbyn's a nice man. He's got an allotment. They'll vote for Jeremy Corbyn if they think that a government is going to stand up to big business and implement socialist policies in the interests of the majority. If they think they're going to get a council house, if they think there's going to be a £10 an hour minimum wage, that the health service will have money put into it and will be renationalised. So it matters that the manifesto is good uh, as well. As I've already said, there has to be a movement built on the streets for a general election. But that would also strengthen Corbyn's position after an election if he's come to the power on the basis of millions of people actively supporting the ele uh, election of a Labour government. But we also have to prepare for what comes after a general election because this will be the second time, or would be the second time in this era, that you've seen a left anti-austerity government being elected in opposition to big business. And the first was Syriza. And we all know what happened with Syriza. The working class of Greece showed they were prepared to stand up against austerity when they voted no in the referendum that took place. But the government capitulated and is now implementing austerity policies just the same as every other government in Europe. Now, Britain's a much bigger economy. Um, it's not in the terrible economic situation that the Greeks were in when Syriza came to power. But it would just be naivety to think that that means we wouldn't face fundamentally the same problems. That big business, the IMF, capitalism globally would do everything in its power to sabotage a left Labour government. And, you know, having cups of tea with the City of London will not alter that one iota. And so, therefore, it's also a question of being prepared to fight for your programme, to mobilise working class people in support of your programme, but also, in the end, being able, prepared to take socialist measures. If big business are sabotaging you, if the banks are sabotaging you, saying that we will take the commanding heights of the economy, finance into democratic public ownership so that we can really begin to build a society for the millions, not the millionaires, for the many, not the few, being prepared to take on big business and start to build a new socialist order and appeal to workers across Europe and the world to follow the same path. And we're not ready for all of that, but that's not a reason to stand aside from the struggle. We have to get on with it and fight for it, but also then fight for that programme, which is what the Socialist Party is doing. OK, thanks, Hannah. Obviously, it's a very rapidly unfolding situation, so people should keep an eye on our website. 
um, for updates and articles and things and we'll definitely come back to the situation as it unfolds in future podcast episodes. Like Sarah said, head over to our website for updates and also the episode notes at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast where you'll find some of our articles on this issue. Leave us a five-star review and click subscribe to get new episodes straight to your device and email us any questions for Hannah or suggestions for future episodes to socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk.